1984, uh, United States president sat down at a radio broadcasting station and spoke the following words. My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. Do you remember that? Did you learn that in history class? This was Ronald Reagan, and he was there for a broadcast in this radio station. And before the broadcast was to begin, uh, they asked him to do a simple mic check. And so kind of off the cuff, he makes this joke that Russia is to be banished forever. Bombing will commence in five minutes. Um, what he did not realize is that that was actually recorded. And then it was shared. And for some reason, Russia didn't laugh at the joke. Uh, but the question became, why was that the joke that he came up with off the cuff? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. What's inside will ultimately come out. The things that come out of us are actually what was inside of us. The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Have you ever said something that you know you should not have? But you know that there's a reason you said it. Why? Because it was in there and it comes out. What was inside will ultimately come out. And so we are in the midst of our series going through this letter called Philemon. Um, this letter was written by Paul to a man named Philemon and, and also those around him. He is apparently a, a man of means. Um, he has enough wealth that he has a house large enough to house a, a church, a small church, a house church, a home church in his, in his property. Um, but he also is the owner of at least one slave, if not more. Uh, one of them, whose name is Onesimus, has run away from him. And Paul actually is discipling Onesimus. Onesimus is serving Paul because Paul is a prisoner at this point because of the gospel. And Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon and he's writing this letter saying, I want you to receive him more like a brother. Remember that last week? That he starts with all this familial language. Brother, sister. He was adopted into the family of God. You did not deserve to be here, but God in his mercy and grace has brought you in. He's paid the debt. He has given you his own name. You're in this family through adoption. So remember, we're brothers and sisters, and we're all in this family by grace. And so he wants him to have that at the forefront of his mind as he receives Onesimus back. And here we are at verse 4. So Philemon chapter 1, it'll also be on the screen. Philemon chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 is what we'll cover today. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. This actually follows the typical Pauline structure of his letters, um, his epistles in the New Testament as we have them recorded. Um, there is one exception in Galatians where he kind of deviates from his norm, but there's a typical structure for the way that Paul would write. He would start with acknowledging who he is and who he's writing to, and then he would typically go into some kind of a prayer. And a quick study tip, if you're reading one of Paul's letters and you're like, oh, there's so much here. What, like, what was the big idea here, Paul? If you go back to the opening prayer, he often will divulge what his ultimate theological aim is in just that opening prayer. And we see that here, right? That here, Paul starts with a greeting, has this prayer, and then he says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. That's what he wants for Philemon to have resounding through his mind and heart when Onesimus comes back. Hey, it's love for the saints, 
namely Onesimus. It's faith in the Lord that, yes, you're a man of means, and some of your means have walked away, but they're coming back. But your faith is not in that. Your faith is in the Lord. He wants this to be what defines his interaction. It's what he desires for Philemon to demonstrate, his love for the saints, faith in the Lord. But he's saying this in a prayer. Begs the question, what is a prayer? We're told to pray often, pray without ceasing even. But what actually is prayer? Uh, Tim Keller says it like this. It'll be on the screen. And his um, kind of comprehensive work called Prayer, this book, he says, there are three basic kinds of prayer to God. There is upward prayer, praise and thanksgiving that focuses on God himself. Then there is inward prayer, self-examination and confession that bring a deeper sense of sin and in return, a higher experience of grace and assurance of love. Finally, there is outward prayer, supplication and intercession that focuses on our needs and the needs of others in the world, like we just prayed for Jess, to pray for someone else, asking God to do what only God can do. So today, we'll look at Paul's short opening in this prayer and see what it teaches us about prayer in just verses four and five. Read it one more time with me. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. He starts off, this is a prayer of thanksgiving, or in Keller's language, this is upward prayer. It's thanksgiving and praise, and then there's this outward intercession. When I mention you, thank is explicit. He says, I always thank my God. Thank is explicit. A thanksgiving is something that is both felt and it's expressed. And you think about just the word alone, thanks, giving. Thanks means I feel this. There's a gratitude within me. But then it's giving. That this feeling that I have, this gratitude, I now express, it goes out. So it is felt and it is expressed. When I say that it is felt, that means that it is genuine. That our prayer actually comes from deep within us. A prayer that is truly felt. As didn't Jesus teach us? not to pray so that we could impress and be seen like the Pharisees? It's not about what theological jargon you can throw together and the way that you can have this dramatic rise and fall or inflection, whatever it is. No, it's what's actually in you. You feel that. And often when you feel that, like it's college football season. It amazes me. Like it's, it's fun for me just to watch people. The excitement When we really feel something, we express that. It comes out, but we have to feel it. We're also not supposed to babble. So it's like the Gentiles. Don't babble in your prayer. It's not about this rote, just kind of script that we run through, like, oh, dear God, this and this and this and this and this. And the next time you pray, oh, dear God, and this and this and this and this and this. He doesn't want that. He wants what is genuinely felt inside of us. We speak that. It's personal. We feel this personally. You notice the pronouns that Paul is using. I always thank my God. I, my, that it's personal. And that's about expression, right? The things that are expressed are expressed to people, to persons. It's relational. That prayer is this relational thing, that you're talking to an actual person. And so we have to be conscious of God's presence, the close proximity, the listening ear of an actual person when we pray. And often we'll say, like, I feel like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, just here alone. Like, like the psalm said, how long, O Lord, will you hide your, fa- hide your face forever? 
And there absolutely are seasons, prolonged seasons for many of us, where it feels like God has distanced himself. But we know the truth is he's with us. There's nowhere we could go to escape him. But sometimes our felt experience is like God has distanced himself. And what is this? This dark night of the soul, this, this time of wandering in a wilderness and just starving, I'm yearning for him. But often I have to wonder, I know in my own experience, do I feel that way because I'm not actually realizing how much I'm talking to a person, but I'm just running through a script, doing my duty. And that's not prayer. Because prayer is felt and then it is expressed to a person who is listening. It is true, as Jesus said, that God already knows what you're going to ask before you ask. Then why do we ask? Because it's a person that we're talking to. Because it's relational, that he wants us to express these things. And this is why he actually says, you have not because you ask not. Like God knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows everything you could ever need, everything you could ever think, everything you're ever going to ask him, and yet he wants you to ask him. And sometimes he's not giving you what you need or want because he's waiting for you to ask. That's a beautifully sovereign God. And why does he do that? Because he wants the relationship with you. Because he loves you. He wants to enjoy spending time with you in prayer. That he's actually present with us. That's the difference in telling my wife I love her. If I'm getting ready for work and I'm just thinking about, I've got X number of meetings today, I've got to get this done, I've got to get this done, oh no, I didn't finish that yesterday. All these things running through my mind and it's frantic, like grab the granola bar, we got to go. I'm headed out the door and I turn and look at my wife who's getting the kids together and everything. I say, I love you. And I close the door and I walk out. What did I say? I said, I love you. But when I walk over to my wife, despite everything that's frantic and going on in my life, and I look at her, and I consider her beauty, her physical appearance, that I just so love. And then the internal adorning, the beautiful character of my wife, and all the reasons that I love her so much. And I might even tear up a little as I slow down and I say, I love you. And then I walk out the door. The same words, but so different. Because one is felt, and then from feeling that, I express that. And that's the invitation of prayer. To genuinely feel this, to genuinely consider this reality, that there's the God of the cosmos here with me in this moment, listening. He wants to hear from me. And then from that place of being so loved, so cared about, then I talk, and I say what's true inside of me. It's felt and it's expressed. It's vertical. Thanksgiving is vertical. But what's implicit in this thanksgiving that's also vertical is praise. That Paul is also praising God. This is implicit, but it's evident in the fact that Paul is even thanking God. Why would Paul be thanking God? It means that he attributes God with the power to make this thing happen. That he attributes God with the power to have ever changed Philemon's heart, to make him love the saints, to make him have faith in the Lord, that faith is a gift that comes from God. So like, what do I have to give? Faith. I respond in faith. But where did the faith come from? From God. It's all from God and to God. Like, this is amazing. And so here he is giving God the thanks for this. And he, he attributes the power to God. He sees God 
as the providential source of this love and faith that Onesimus is in need of right now. And then he shifts from the vertical to the horizontal. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. When I mention you, that Paul pulls back the curtain and says, look into the window of my prayer life. I'm praying vertically to God, but I'm praying for you as well, horizontally, praying for you. This is intercession. It's evident when he says, I mention you. This is what petitionary prayer, intercession is all about. It's praying on behalf of another. And we should pray for others. And Jesus was asked one time, what is, what's the greatest commandment, teacher? He says, simple, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The paradigm in the way of Jesus is to love God with everything we have. But when we do that, that vertical love for God overflows horizontally in love for man, in love for you, love for everyone, that we live in the overflow of God's love for us into love for others. And it's how? As you love yourself. And that's terribly convicting. Love others as much as you love yourself. And you can run through so many scenarios right now Try to stay focused, but what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like to love my neighbor as much as I love myself? Wow, how radically would things change? Not just for me, but for everyone around me. If I love them as much as I love myself, and if I love my neighbor as much as I love myself, then will I not pray for them? I have a bad day, a bad moment. You know what I instinctively do? Oh, God, help me. And that's not wrong. We should ask for God's help. Help me, though. What's not as instinctive is help him, help her. Uh, this, this week, Friday, um, I rode my bike to Winter Garden. I'm, I'm sitting there trying to study all this stuff. And, and on my way back on the trail, it's like 1230. It's hot. If you haven't been outside lately, it's hot. Okay? And I'm very smart, so I wore a black cotton shirt and all this stuff. And stuff like, it's hot. Like, it's crazy hot. Um, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I'm riding my bike, and I get to this stretch where it's just wooded. Like, there, there's just woods around you. You can't see cars or anything. The road is out of sight. But I'm riding along, and in the distance, I see a bicycle on its side in the middle of the path. I, I get a little closer and realize, like, oh, there's a, there's a man taking a nap on the side of the trail. Well, that's probably not good. Like, <laughs> not the best place to take a nap. But I get there. Obviously, something's wrong, and... I'm soaked in sweat, like, the guy's probably overheated. And the guy is telling me, he's like, the white car's gonna hit us. Like, he, he's hallucinating. Like, he's, he's seeing a white car coming down the trail. Like, buddy, we can't see a road right now. Um, so I'm pouring water on him, like, trying to just help him cool down, all this stuff. Like, being like, do I call 911? So talking to him, all this stuff. And all the while, I'm thinking, like, how do I, how do I help point this back to the gospel? How do I help this man know that I care about more than just the suffering you're experiencing right now? And that's good and right. But as I left that guy, I was so convicted as I just spent time studying and preparing for this sermon. I thought, why didn't I pray with him? Like, what? why didn't I pray with him? Like, all the prayers in my head, that's great. But like, why wasn't it my default to, yes, try to share the hope of eternal joy in light of this momentary light affliction? 
but also, like, let's talk to God together and ask him to help in this moment. We will pray for others when we love them. And we pray for others because we love them because there's real power in prayer. That prayer actually does change things. And we are not God, so we have to absolutely admit that we don't see everything that he sees. Um, I, I, I'm going to butcher this quote, but someone way smarter than me says, you know, if, if we had the vantage point of God, we would pray exactly like God would pray. Because he sees all things. He knows all things. He knows what is truly for our good. We don't. It's like my kids waking up wanting donuts for breakfast. Like, sure, every once in a while, but like, no, that's, that's bad for you. We have to get this under control. But everything, every fiber of their being says, no donuts is good for me. Like, I, I know, but I'm going to have to say no because it's actually not. And you just don't know that yet. So we must trust God. But we ask God because it actually changes things. There is real power in prayer. This is the way that James wrote it in his epistle. James 5, 16, uh, the second part of this verse, part B, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Do you hear that? The word of God says this. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Powerful. It has an effect. It's powerful. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. He said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Anything we ask in his name, he says he'll do it. But what does it mean to ask in his name? Is it this catchy little thing that we throw on, we tack it on to the end of our prayers? In Jesus' name. I think that's a great habit. I would encourage you in your prayer with in Jesus' name. But understand what that means. When we say in Jesus' name, it's not a magical formula that we can just tack on and say like, I'm gonna hold you to it. You said you'd make it happen if I asked in his name. No, it's someone's name is their person. And so when we ask in the name of Jesus, we ask in alignment with who he is, submitting to him, knowing he loves us, but with great faith and confidence that he will do something. I may not understand it, but I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask boldly. We approach the throne of grace with confidence because it is a throne of grace. And grace is demonstrated beautifully, more so than any other way. And the fact that God the Son, who is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, forevermore, he stepped into humanity. We celebrate this at Christmas, that God, the Son, took on flesh. He became human, fully God and fully man, and then he lived a sinless life. But then he died the death that you and I deserve. He died for us because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's why he came, because he loves you. He loves you not because you earned his favor, it's grace. You could not earn it. You could never, ever, ever be good enough. But he loves you. And at great cost to himself, not to you. He says, I'm going to make a way. The way is Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Rescuer. Jesus, our Salvation. The one who has come to save us. Who died in our place and said, I give you my righteousness. And I take your sin on myself. And he put it to death. He paid the debt. And now, Jesus giving us his own righteousness. Hear James again? The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Why am I righteous? Not because of what I've done, 
but because of what Jesus has done, that he has given me his own righteousness. And so now when I pray, I pray in Jesus' name, saying, that's why I'm here, Father, because of what your son has done, that I know you love me. This is how you showed me that I'm loved. You sent your son. And so I stand here with the confidence of a mediator named Jesus Christ, an advocate for me in the throne room of heaven who says, he's mine. I paid the way. He's mine. I'm adopted into the family like we talked about last week. This is how we can have powerful prayer in the name of Jesus. That's the only reason we can pray at all. Because Jesus, what he has done, he is our salvation. He has brought us back into a right relationship with God. And remember, prayer is about relationship. So we pray with that confidence, knowing that there is power in the name of Jesus, this person. It's our standing before God made possible by Jesus. It's how we know that he loves us. It's how we know that he's actually listening. Their prayers are not bouncing off the ceiling. God never, ever misses it. He hears it. And he cares about you. You may be in a season right now saying, like, I've been asking for a long time. And you've done nothing. And I want you to know what he's telling you to do is to keep praying. Jesus said, you're going to be like this persistent widow. This lady, like, terrible injustice comes against her. She comes to the judge. Like, give me justice. Give me justice. She's this, this nobody. Like, get her out of here. We have more important things to do. Sends her away. And she comes back over and over and over. She's just, give me justice. Give me justice. Until finally the judge is so annoyed. He's like, okay, give you justice. Have justice. And we don't take from that that that's the heart of God. Because in Ezekiel, he says, like, annoy me, bother me. He wants to hear from us. He loves us. He delights in us. The point of the parable is that Jesus is saying, don't stop asking. Don't stop asking. You ask with faith, knowing he can change things. He has the power to do that. We know that he loves us. We know that he's listening. There is power in faith. But it really comes down to this. Powerful prayer comes from a reality that creates a reality. Powerful prayer comes from a reality that creates a reality. And that's not us mystically conjuring something up inside of us. It's us thinking back to, well, what is prayer? It's felt. It's in Jesus' name. I am here as a son of God asking the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to do something that I cannot do for myself, for you, whatever it is, but I get to do this confidently because I know you love me and I know you're for me and I submit to your will, Father. Will you do this? Because I know you can. And so I come from that reality that this is my grounding, this is my status, this is my station in life is that I am a son of God. This gospel, this reality that I feel, I feel it in me and then from that place I express it. And God has the power to make it come about. And so it comes from this reality and creates a new reality. The power of God. Because what did Jesus say? He said, for from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside will come out. So what's inside? Pray from your heart. The reality within you that is genuine, it is felt and then it is expressed and it's gonna bring about real change by the power of God, the God that we pray to who has all power. But there's a challenge for prayer in our context. It's not just a misunderstanding of prayer. And mind you, this could be a years-long series just talking about prayer. And maybe one day the Lord will lead us to that. 
But the challenge is not just misunderstanding prayer. It's just, in the words of another pastor, start with what you've got. The challenge today, I think, so much is time and attention. Do we have the time for prayer? Do we have the attention, the focus to give to prayer? Nobel laureate Herbert Simon uh, coined this term, attention economy. The, the thing of great value in today's day and age in, in this global economy is the commodity of your attention. Everyone's competing for your attention because everything else, the, the consumption will follow. Where is your attention? Uh, he brilliantly noted, uh, I love this line, he says, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Get this. In April of this year, just a few months ago, April of this year, approximately 328.77 million terabytes of data are created each day. And it's rising exponentially. If you're like me, you have no idea what that means except to say, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Let me, let me try to help you because I, I could not track with that number. Imagine a library filled with books, okay? A library filled with books. And each book is about one terabyte of data. All the words written in that whole book equals one terabyte of data. Every single day in that library, you would need to add 329 million books. Not knocking them, but books a million is not true. Most bookstores have between three to 5,000 books on their shelves. Think about that. You walk into a library, you walk into a bookstore, there might be 5,000 books in there. To keep up with the amount of data generated every day that you have access to with that thing in your pocket all the time, you would need to add 329 million books to that room every single day. Or if you're more visual, like me, if this were a paper trail, the amount of data that can go on a single page, A4 standard letter size paper, if this were a paper trail, it would stretch to the edge of the solar system and back daily. That's the amount of new content generated every day that you have access to. Do you feel it? Do you feel the exhaustion of all the notifications of how there is always something to captivate you? And we love it. We throw ourselves into it. We love the escape. We love the distraction. We consume as much as we can. And then, ironically, here's a soapbox, but we think after 30 minutes of going down some rabbit trail, suddenly we're an expert. <laughs> Maybe not. 231.4 million emails sent every single minute. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. Look at my inbox. <laughs> 2.43 million snaps on Snapchat every minute. 1.7 million pieces of content shared on Facebook every minute. We have to fight against the inclination to be perpetually entertained and overstimulated. Have space for God. This prayer should be continual. It's pray without ceasing, but it's really more of a posture. And do you know the beauty of when your inner dialogue no longer is just you talking to yourself, but slowly with discipline over time, it's you just constantly talking with God. That every thought 
can be held captive for Christ. So much easier when you turn every thought Godward. All of your thinking can suddenly be a conversation with God. So pray without ceasing, but also have times for profundity, for profound time of deep focus and communion with God in prayer, to enjoy him, to be with him. It requires times of silence and solitude, and we hate those things. that that weird tension I used to teach at the high school and I used to love when we get to talking about pop culture and everything and I just stopped and we'd sit there for a while and within 10 seconds someone had to make noise we can't stand it go home today and put a timer on your phone outside the door just so you hear it when it goes off Disable all other notifications so you don't hear anything, but when that timer goes off, just spend five minutes with nothing to do, just in quiet. Make time. Jesus modeled this. He often would retreat. He'd be crazy busy. There's so much happening. that, Like in Mark's gospel, he says, the entire town has come because he's been healing people. You're like, there's so many people here. They're asking you to heal them. And what does Jesus do? He disappears. What? The Jesus I've heard of my whole life? People needed him. And what did he do? He disappeared. And he would do this often. We hear about them doing this all the time in the Gospels, that he would often withdraw to isolated places, that he would go to desolate places. He would go intentionally into the wilderness where there is nothing. And he would just spend time praying. So we need to do the same. We follow after our rabbi Jesus as his apprentices, as his disciples. We must do what he modeled for us. We need silence. We need solitude. It's this crazy paradox that often the times in the wilderness are about subtraction rather than addition. We think everything, if I'm going to grow, if I'm going to progress, it's, it's addition. Add on, add on. And yet, the wilderness is this time where it's all about just taking away. And yet, in this paradox, we're productive and there's growth. Because we have time with God when we focus in on him. In solitude and prayer, we get the rare opportunity to take all the masks off. That you get to live in the reality of the gospel profoundly. That when I'm alone with God, I have no one to impress. There's no one to perform for. It's just me and him. I don't have the need or the ability to perform when it's just me and God. And we so desperately need that, people like me especially. I'm so prone to thinking life is about achievement and I must perform. And yet I get to be with the Lord and hear him tell me how much he loves me, not because of what I'm doing for him, good or bad, but just because he loves me, because he chose to. We also ironically find ourselves having to be honest and face the hurts that we have experienced. And maybe you're living in perpetual pain, and not just physical pain. It could be physical, but it could be emotional. It could be whatever it is. And maybe you just need to actually be alone with God to process that and actually give it to him. Ask him to heal in a way that time or counseling or anything else, not that any of those things are bad, they're great. 
What if we just gave it over to the Lord? Will you give him the time to do that? Sometimes it's hurts or shame or things that we've been avoiding that we need other people to not be present so that we can actually be present with God to receive that healing, to receive that wisdom, to receive that power to forgive or even to seek forgiveness. But you may not find it until you spend some time alone with God. And like the psalmist, you can say, search me, God. Search me. You ask him, bring to light what's hidden. What have I done a great job of throwing in that closet, locking the door, stacking some stuff up in front of it, and walking away? Like, nope, it's going to come out. Spend some time with God. So what do we need? We need silence and solitude. We need times of profound prayer. How do we do that? How do we do that? Um, I'm going to steal this from Pastor Tim. You have to learn to be okay with being hungry. You have to learn to be okay with being hungry. In the wilderness, there's not an abundance of food. But you might find something that satisfies so much more. So much more. Prolonged silence, focus, not filling it with noise or distraction. Just be with God. This is why fasting and meditation are disciplines that go hand in hand with prayer. Um, learn to, to create an intentional time of hunger. And then the self-control that comes from that. And I'm amazed at how much of my life is so greatly affected by how much I engage in the discipline of fasting. When I have the discipline of fasting going quasi-well, never great, but quasi-well, then I see how that actually affects so many other things in my life. And part of it is absolutely self-control. It's, it's that discipline. But so much of it is that I'm yearning more and more for God and finding satisfaction in Him rather than these other things that just lead me away. Learn to be okay with being hungry. Prolonged silence. Focus, not filling it with noise or distraction. And so practically establish a rhythm for daily prayer. And you may think, like, that's kind of monastic. Like the monks do that kind of stuff. Like pray without ceasing, Kevin. Like, yes, but also it's incredibly helpful to say, here's a set time where predictably, I know I'm going to spend time in prayer, and I protect it. You put it on your calendar. You write prayer in your calendar, and then when someone asks, can you do this at this time? You say, I'm so sorry. My calendar doesn't allow for it at that time. And it's protected. And you don't even need to tell them, well, it's, it's time for prayer, because for some reason, which is insane, we don't value prayer. Well, let's be a church that we could shift that. And it may start with saying, like, I'm sorry, my calendar doesn't allow for it. But one day, what if we could say, I'm sorry, I'm going to be praying during that time. It's like, good, that's awesome. I'm going to join you in that. Just be a praying people. Okay with being hungry, spending predictable time and a predictable place. That's the other thing that's wonderfully helpful. Have a place. You designate as when I go here, I pray. That's why I ride my bike to Winter Garden. Because years ago in seminary, there was a little place that I went to, where for whatever reason, I knew if I went there, I could hammer out a lot of pages. Like, I could write a lot. Come home, work in the office, and it's just like, I can't do this. But I go to this place, and because I had designated that place, the only reason I went to that place was so that I could study, so that I could focus. It stuck with me. That when I go to that place, my mind works differently. It's easier for me to connect with God. He made us as embodied creatures, spatial creatures. Embrace that. 
Set a time and a place where you are going to spend profound time with God. Just simply be with God. Because he wants to be with you. He wants to hear from you. So let your prayer be felt and expressed, knowing that powerful prayer comes from a reality that creates a reality. Can you believe this good news? There's a God who loves you that much that he wants to hear from you. Now will you share it? Let's tell the world. I am not going to pray aloud right now. Instead, I invite you to pray. Feel it and express it. And the confidence of this is my position in Christ, that God loves me and wants me. And in just a couple minutes, the band will come and lead us in worship. But let's be quiet before the Lord.